James Carey had turned. His entrance into the courtroom would be the first time most people knew about it, be it the public, prisoners or lawyers. Boosie reports in his book on the moment Carey walked in. He describes Carey as a medium-sized man with slouching gait, shoulders rather inclined to be rounded, a, a thin, thin, dissipated, red blotchy face, prominent, bearsized nose, beady, ferrety, washed-out blue eyes, and moustache, whiskers and beard tinged with Indian red, entered the court. At the first breath of the execration, small man, whose entrance was the signal for the commotion, hesitated, recoiled, and would have fled in craven terror but for the official end upon his arm. So, with an obvious effort, which plainly racked his all nervous energies, he braced himself and mounted the table. As Carey took the steps, he shouted to one corner of the dock in a shrill, piping treble. I was before ye after all, Dan. James Carey was a big fish. There was disagreement surrounding whether or not he should be allowed to give testimony at all. He was a high-ranking member of the Invincibles, one of the original four, their paymaster. He was highly involved in the organisation of the assassinations, even if he left right before the act itself took place. Some argued that allowing him to testify would act as a deterrent to others who would give thought to a group targeting the government. If you can't trust one of the high-ranking leaders, who can you trust? The first thought was one of regret at the necessity of accepting such as a witness. But the reason will be apparent to anyone who reads the astounding revelations made by James Carey of the whole course of the conspiracy. Important to the Home Secretary, Sir William Harcourt, was the idea that Carey could link the group to Parnell and the Land League, an idea that did not turn out the way he had hoped. Furthermore, Carey could potentially lead them to an even bigger fish, the paymasters of the organisation, whoever they were. And without Carey's evidence, a conviction against the group was not guaranteed. The testimony of Farrell and Kavanagh was lacking, not strong enough to ensure that the subsequent trials would be successful. Mallon had made a point throughout the period from the arrest to the hearings to be on good terms with Carey's wife Maggie. He expressed sympathy for their children. One day, Mallon remarked to her that Daniel Curley had started to talk. He allowed her to write a letter to her husband, knowing full well that she would pass this bad news on. There was personal pressure on Carey as his brother Peter was implicated in the murder, despite not being in the park that day. Mallon honed in on his target further. One evening, Carey was disturbed by the noise of footsteps creeping along the floor outside his cell. The grill covering the spy hole in his door had been intentionally left open. Carey, curious as to the source of these late evening noises, pressed his cheek up against it. Through the tiny space he could see policemen enter a nearby cell, then Mallon, then Crown Solicitor George Bolton. Eventually, after what must have seemed like an eternity for the suspicious prisoner, a call for pens, ink and paper was made. Even later still, the papers left again, under the arms of Inspector Mallon. Pages and pages of newly inked conversation recorded by Mallon. But who was the source? Boosie's writings on this trick of Mallon's, though clearly fanciful conjecture in places, tell of Carey quizzing a warder 
as the occupant of the next cell. Carey had already been led to believe, through his wife and Malin, that Curly had turned informer. Whether it was a warder who told him or not, Carey now had it in his head that Curly was next door and had provided Malin with reams of pages on the Invincibles. He asked for Malin. The inspector feigned disinterest. What Carey had told him was all well known. He had enough evidence from Curly. Malin left Carey in his cell, his mind racing as to his demise and Curly's betrayal. This, of course, was all nonsense. Curly had refused to give any information to Malin, it being recalled that those, those who, who knew him would as soon believe that Robert Emmett offered the torn informer as Daniel Corley. He had always been a true, honest, fearless nationalist. What Carey didn't know was that the cell where Malin was supposedly hearing Curley's confession was actually empty. The next day, Malin returned to Carey's cell, this time with an apparent change of heart, listening intently to what Carey had to tell him. With this belief of Curley's betrayal and taking some alcohol for his nerves, Carey staggered into the courtroom, firmly believing that he had just managed to save his neck, though still not at this point guaranteed, before he could be sold out. Michal O'Dwivlin. In fairness to Malin, for his day, an, an incredible detective. Understood people in a way that not many people did at the time. It would be, would be better now you understand the psychology of the individual, etc. But he used this. He did it extremely well. It tricked him into thinking, as you say, that the others had been informing. Um, and that he was going to be left out there blamed for the whole darn thing himself. And it was all going to come down on him. And he didn't want that to happen. So he turned informer. And that broke it for everybody. Suddenly, the dam was burst. Now, uh, Malin had real information. The narrative outside the courthouse changed immediately. The crowds who were beginning to look less favourably on the group as their connection with the brutal attack grew even clearer found a new reason to gather. Their hatred of Carey, the informer. Sure, Brady and Kelly had hacked two men to death, but those dead men could be deemed an enemy. Carey committed one of the worst crimes in those days by informing. He had sold his companions out. The Invincibles were themselves now victims. Victims of Carey turning rat. A hypocrite. A coward. A betrayer. His wife and children would now require police protection. His tenants refused to pay rents. Windows were smashed. All associations Carey had been a member of professionally disavowed him. He was boycotted. It is stated that Kerry's wife recently disposed of the furniture from her house in Denzel Street and that her neighbours, in order to give expression of their feelings of sympathy with herself and that of her husband, purchased the articles at a high price. But that on Sunday, when it was known that Kerry had turned informer, the police found it necessary to place a couple of constables on duty at the house at all times in order that no hostile demonstration should take place. Journalist Fred Gallagher made it his mission to interview Kerry for the Freeman's Journal. He knew that Margaret Kerry was due to visit her husband in Kilmainham and persuaded her of the benefit of getting his side of the story out to the Irish public. Mrs. Carey would bring her infant son to the jail under the guise of cheering her husband up. To help, Gallagher would send in sports journalist Sonny Kerwin, posing as her brother. His role would be to carry the baby's son to assist Mrs. Carey, earning access to Carey's cell. Kerwin got as far as the waiting room and convinced the deputy governor of his value to the visit. 
when who should pop his head in? John Mallon. Mallon recognised Kerwin immediately. The jig was up. Next, Gallagher tried a more direct approach. He gave Mrs Carey some sheets of paper, with around 120 yes and no questions on them. This time it would apparently work. The Freemans would take the answers and use them to form a conversation with Carey. It is inferred in Boosie's recollections that the piece was published that February, though as of the date of releasing this episode, we have not yet located the record. Carey's turning will be the last in the sequence of hearings for the Invincibles, and the most riveting. Every eye in the court was on him, every ear pricked, especially the ears of the other prisoners. They listened to his evidence with an attentive earnestness that had not been previously visible when any of the other witnesses were being examined, and occasionally one or two interrupted him with angry or sneering remarks. Brady and one or two others smiled occasionally, but generally there was an air of gravity visible that was in conspicuous comparison with the levity before so constantly exhibited. Carey showed little emotion. He sat with eyes downcast and face half averted. He spoke low, frequently pausing before replying. He was first quizzed as to his role in the Fenian Brotherhood, then the Invincibles. How McCaffrey had brought John Walsh to his house in November 1881 and sworn him in, penknife in hand. Once the origins of the group was discussed, the prosecution turned to the list of names that Walsh and his society in London had marked for death. Who were the names stated to you that it was determined by the London Society to be removed? Forster had been a known target, but when Carey mentioned Earl Cowper, an excited murmur spread in the courthouse. Carey confirmed that while these two had been selected for them, they themselves had later chosen Burke as a target. He spoke of taking a house on Cork Hill for the purpose of shooting Earl Cowper, of scoping out the Phoenix Park for Forster, as they did not at that point know what he looked like. He spoke of being introduced to a man, named afterwards to him as P.J. Sheridan, in the Angel Hotel by Walsh in December 1881. Sheridan was disguised as a priest, and spoke to Walsh about the progress in watching Forster. Allegedly, Sheridan was in Ireland to extend a branch of the Invincibles down in the countryside. Carey would meet him at a later stage in the Midland Hotel, where Carey queried a potential supply of arms. Carey would specifically ask for daggers, suggesting they put a cord around the handles for better grip. When the weapons came over, Carey would split the consignment with James Mullet. Finally, the prosecution arrived to the attacks in Phoenix Park. Carey told of meeting Joseph Smith coming out of the castle on the 6th of May. Smith was on his way to get his weekly wages and arranged to meet Carey in Wren's public house afterwards. Other members of the Invincibles were in the pub already, including Brady, Kelly and Delaney. Curley took Smith to get his dinner in Fleming's on George's Street. After having dinner and a drink paid for, the Invincibles, Carey and Joseph Hanlon got in to skin the goat's cab with Smith. Arriving in the park, Carey got down from the cab with the two Joes and went over to the polo ground nearby watching a game. Curley, curious as to Carey's watching the game, approached him and told him to come over so as not to miss Burke. Carey sat on the seat beside Smith. Where did Curley and Hanlon go? Curley and Hanlon took the cab, Curley confirming they'd sent one back for them. 
Kerry made a point of telling the courtroom that Smith did not know what he was wanted for at the time. I will save every innocent man I can. Do you recollect seeing the car come down after Curly said he would send back for you? Kerry confirmed Kavanaugh, without speaking a word, pulled his car opposite the seat where they were. Matching Kavanaugh's testimony, Kerry spoke of Kavanaugh feeding his horse with a nosebag. Whom did you first observe, or what did you first observe, that attracted your attention? Kerry reported that just after seven, Smith stood up on the seat and declared, here is someone coming. He walked diagonally about five yards from the seat and confirmed it. Here he is. Kerry and Smith climbed back onto Kavanaugh's car. Kerry looked back over the top of the car, spotting two men as he put his foot on it. On the way up, had you a handkerchief in your hand? Kerry confirmed the white handkerchief, the prearranged signal. They made their way to the others, stopping just past Fitzharris's cab. Who was it, at that time there, that had control of the arrangements? Daniel Curley was in control. Curley and Brady asked Kerry to confirm if Burke was coming, and Kerry confirmed it was the man in the grey suit. Smith followed Kerry, still allegedly unsure what was happening. On Brady's advice, Kerry sent him home, and Smith took his leave out of Island Bridge Gate. And what occurred then? After Smith's departure, Kerry asked Brady what he was to do. In no uncertain terms, Brady told him he may go. You are not wanted here. A disliking between the pair. Kerry left in the same direction as Smith. Did you look back and see the two gentlemen come up to the man that you had left there. Carey did. He was only about 50 yards away. He kept looking back occasionally. When he was about 250 yards, he turned and saw the seven Invincibles meeting Burke and Cavendish. He described the seven letting Burke and Cavendish pass through the front ranks until the point where Brady turned. What did you see done then? Carey said, I saw this man, Brady, raising his left hand and strike with it. The gentleman in the grey suit. That is all I saw. Carey confirmed it was seven minutes past seven when he left the park, timing his movements so that he could establish his own timeline. He met Smith at Cody's public house in Kilmainham and they got the tram to Grafton Street, where they went into Cleary's pub. Carey deliberately made sure he was seen by Mr. Cleary, shaking hands with him and speaking for about 15 minutes. Later that night, Curly found Carey, and they went over the events of the day. What did Curly tell you about the two gentlemen? According to Carey, Curly said he believed the two gentlemen were dead. Whether or not Carey was trying to deliberately distance Curly a bit from the event is unclear. Curly had watched Brady carry out the attack, wipe blood off in the grass, and then leave the scene. There was no mention of Kelly in this recounting of a recounting and the short repetition ended with Curly leaving in the other car. Carey then described meeting Brady at around 10pm that night. What did he say happened? Brady mentioned that as the attack was about to commence, a cab went by, causing him to pass Burke and requiring that he turn around before stabbing him. While doing so, Cavendish apparently struck him in the face with an umbrella, and annoyed, Brady struck Cavendish in turn. No new information came from this, Again, Carey's account of another account. 
A decision was made in a following meeting to destroy the knives. How were they destroyed? Carey confirmed the knives were broken into little bits and the handles were burned. Carey disagreed with the decision to destroy them, instead desiring to keep them for exhibition as a national relic. He informed the hearing that he actually resigned from the Invincibles in June 1882, this being accepted in October that year by the man who gave them orders and money, alluded to in court as number one. It's hard to determine which of Carey's statements are fact or fiction. Would he just be let resign when others felt the fear of death upon expressing similar desires? Not likely. It's true that mention of Carey dissipates after the attacks in the park, but this is mostly by his own account. Wouldn't it be best to omit himself from as many of the criminal charges as possible? Little in the way of cross-examination came immediately. The defence for the other prisoners taken unawares of Carey's turning approver. At the end of the hearings, a pale Patrick Delaney summoned the strength to push to the front of the dock and with his hand outstretched, declared that he attributed all the misfortune through his life to James Carey. Before they left the dock, some prisoners warmly shook hands, bidding each other farewell, perhaps now unsure if they would see each other again. Between the hearings and the trials, the men were gathered in court again to hear the official depositions against them. During the reading of the depositions, a number of the wives, sisters and other personal friends of the prisoners entered the gallery of the dock and leaning down kissed the hands of their friends below. The accused men responded warmly to the greeting. The ensuing trials would take place back in Green Street Courthouse. With all the information presented over the course of the hearings, the trials themselves were a formality, though still could be as exciting as the hearings at times. Peter Carey would join the group of informers, though his testimony would not be as useful as that of his brother. April 11th. Brady was on trial first. He stood before Judge O'Brien, nicknamed Hatchetface. Also in court that day would be the informers. Carey would again create a sense of exhilaration as he gave his evidence. During his evidence, he had occasion to look straight at Brady and their eyes met. And I can never forget the look of scorn, contempt and hatred with which the prisoner fixed his piercing eyes on the informer. Carey quickly shifted his position and looked at him no more until leaving the table, he was brought face to face with him and received the same appalling look. Brady's counsel, Mr. Webb, attempted to undermine Carey's testimony as an informer, focusing on the deal struck and Carey's own lies and behaviour despite his religion. He reminded the court that it was Carey's idea to use knives as weapons. Carey's testimony would be backed up by Farrell, Kavna and Smith, with varying degrees of value assigned to their testimony, Farrell's being the least useful. An independent witness, Park Ranger Godden, ID'd Brady as being present in the park on the day of the assassinations too. Defence called Anne Marr and another as alibi for Brady that day. But upon cross-examination, it was discovered these were friends of Brady, their testimony questionable. Their testimony did Brady no favours, and it took only 40 minutes for the jury to find him guilty of the assassinations. He showed no emotion at the verdict, though clasped the dock tight with both hands. A girl, reportedly his girlfriend, and his father were both visibly devastated with emotion as Brady was removed from court. Punctually, 
At 10 o'clock yesterday morning, the trial of Daniel Curley for the murder of Mr. Thomas Henry Burke, late Undersecretary of Ireland, was resumed before Mr. Justice O'Brien in the courthouse, Green Street. The prisoner was brought down in the prison van from Kilmainham at 9.30 in the morning and prepared in the back room for trial. Daniel Curley was next on trial on the 16th of April. He wore a tweed suit, placed his hat on a seat at the dock, gripping the bar with both hands, slightly trembling. Many articles from the time make note of Curley's appearance. He was seemingly a very striking man. The Freeman's Journal reported him as highly intelligent and a respectable artisan. His features were finely carved and his large, well-constructed forehead indicated the possession of great natural powers. Unfortunately, it was Curley's unforgettable appearance that would cause the independent witnesses from the park on that day to remember his presence. Two of these noted that they were drawn to watching him after he impressed them with his agility after vaulting over a railing in the park. Carey, again, did his piece. The defence, again, tried to undermine him. Farrell and Smith testified. It was Curley who swore them into the organisation, confirming his status as a ringleader and organiser of the group. A nervous Kavanagh, speaking low, would make errors in his testimony, which the defence tried to use to no avail. Peter Carey would now make his first appearance as a Crown witness, placing Brady and Curley together with James Carey multiple times in the past. Peter Carey also accused Curley of threatening to wipe out Kavanagh at one point, denied by Curley and not mentioned by anyone else. Curley's employer confirmed his absence from work on Friday the 5th and Saturday the 6th of May. It would take 45 minutes for the jury to find him guilty. Pale but composed, Curley made a speech from the dock. I don't seek redress. Of course I expect no mercy. I don't pray for pardon. I expect none from the British government. They are my avowed enemies. I know the position in which I am standing here. I am standing on the brink of the grave. I will speak the truth. I admit I was sworn into the Fenian organisation 12 years ago when I was only 22 years of age. And from that time to the present, I walked openly in the organisation. I was let into a number of their secrets. And I will say here today that I will bring them to my grave faithfully and truly. And as to my own life, if I had a thousand lives to lose, I would rather lose them sooner than bring to my grave the name of Informal and that I should save my life by betraying my fellow man. I am a member of the Invincible Society, undoubtedly, unhesitatingly. Next up was Tim Kelly. He would be tried multiple times, first on the 19th of April. He was in no measure abashed or confused, but looked with interest about him, attentively regarding the proceedings and scrutinising any countenance that struck him in his cool survey of the occupants of the court. Farrell was first to testify against Kelly, a now incredibly unreliable witness. Carey and other witnesses would place Kelly in the park, but the first trial would result in a hung jury. Age played a part, the jury seemingly finding it hard to reconcile the youth with such a brutal crime. Another trial a couple of days later yielded the same result. Kelly, relieved, smiled at friends and family 
as he was removed from the court. His third trial took place on the 7th of May, just over a year since the assassinations in the park. This third trial took place largely at the behest of Mallon. Following the two hung juries, Spencer had been considering leniency for Kelly. But Mallon knew that Kelly was involved and encouraged a third trial to take place. Kelly stood in the dock again, donning an overcoat and pink handkerchief. His lack of concern grew evident as the trial continued. He signaled to a warder that he wanted some paper, scribbled down a few notes and had it passed over to the journalist Fred Gallagher. Gallagher read the note, nodded at Kelly and pocketed it. At the break, Boosie quizzed Gallagher about the contents of the note. It was a bet for a horse running later that day. Gallagher and some of his colleagues and warders from the jail opted to all back the same horse. The horse didn't win. Neither did Kelly. This time, a new approver would take the stand against him. Joe Hanlon, older brother to Lawrence Hanlon and cousin to Daniel Curley, made a deal to testify against Kelly, reluctantly, but in his own words, to save his own life. Hanlon, himself in the park and involved in the attack that day, would confirm Kelly's involvement. Attempts by family and friends to make alibis for Kelly would fail. Claims that he was sick wouldn't work. His defence tried with the sympathy card again, noting their client's epilepsy, his young state, how he was manipulated by Kerry. Kelly knew his time was up. As the jury went to deliberate, he spotted a friend in the courtroom and raised his hand over his head, tongue out, miming the action of being hanged. It took 27 minutes to find him guilty this time. There is no reason now for concealing that fact that his youth, he looked almost boyish, made some of the jury only too glad to see any flaw in the evidence that would satisfy their conscience if they saved his life. A group called the Ladies' Committee sent a letter to Gladstone appealing for the life of Tim Kelly on the grounds of humanity. Their appeal was answered, confirming acknowledgement by Gladstone of their letter, but the matter was entirely in the hands of the Lord Lieutenant. No appeal would save Tim Kelly. While Kelly had awaited his final trial, Michael Fagan took to the dock. Fagan was a smith by trade, late twenties with fair hair and blue eyes. The normal parade of informers, in addition to his recorded absence from work and two independent witnesses, secured a guilty verdict for the proud Fenian, who yelled, I am a Fenian, and I will die one. That, and an account book found in his premises, which recorded receipts of considerable sums, marked with M or C, interpreted to mean civil and military. In sentencing him to death, the learned judge observed that it was an exceedingly painful thing to him to be compelled to terminate a life which had been hitherto so respectable and moral and so little advanced and consign it to such an early grave. Thomas Caffrey and Patrick Delaney, who was already behind bars for involvement in the attack on Judge Lawson, pled guilty. Both were sentenced to death, but Delaney, an approver for the Crown, would receive a reprieve conveniently living to serve Mallon in the future. A lack of reprieve for Caffrey is suggested to be related to his involvement in other crimes, Mallon believing him to have been connected to the transfer of weapons involved in other murders. The last of the original four of the Dublin Directory of Invincibles was James Mullet. 
Though in prison when the assassinations in the park took place, he was tried for involvement in the attempt on Dennis Field and implicated as one of the leading figures in the group. He pled guilty and received penal servitude. James Fitzharris, aka Skin the Goat, was trialed twice for his involvement in the murders. He was so popular that it took hours to swear in a jury for his trial in May. Many brought forward for selection sought to be excused. The first time, he was found not guilty. The main argument was that Fitzharris was just the cabman, was paid just as a cabman, and had no provable motive for participating in the crime. James Carey would swear that Fitzharris was strictly employed as his cabman. He did not know Skin to be an invincible, stating he wasn't young enough. But the judge would be inclined to believe that Carey's decision to protect him was out of guilt for bringing him into the organisation in the first place. The tactics of his defence wouldn't work. While he was acquitted of the capital charge, he would be convicted of being an accessory after the fact to the murder of Burke. When the trials were over, important questions still remained. Who was behind the group? Who funded them? Who was number one? During Carey's hearing, he referenced several discussions between himself, Curly and Mullet in relation to the source of their money. They didn't know for sure, but assumed it was the Land League, causing a sensation in court at the time. Following arrests, money would come in for the sustenance of their families. Carey believed this too came in from the Land League and their sustentation fund. The papers would print that the organisers of the murder are tenfold more guilty than their poor tools who are now standing under the shadow of the gallows. Justice has yet to discover whether the money paid to the culprits really came from the Land League, and also who is the mysterious number one to whom the assassins look for orders as well as gold. Professor Donald McCracken. The, the big question mark is who organised it, because with all due respects to Brady and co, they were the tools um, that, that, that carried it out. The ones that were behind it or the ones should have done it if they were going to do it. But to use um, a simple chap, and I don't mean simple in a nasty sense, you know, to do their dirty work for them and then be killed, I, I, I think that's, 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 that's a dirty dog thing to do. Felix Larkin. What interests me about the Invincibles is what link, if any, there is with the Land League. And I don't know what Donald will have said to you about uh, that, but um, there does seem to have been some link between the treasurer of the Land League, a man called Patrick Egan, and the Invincibles. Whether he was the mastermind behind them or not, I don't know, and we don't know, and we prob probably will never know. We understand that the government have abundant evidence as to the identity of the mysterious organiser of the Invincibles, described as number one. If it be the same person, as it is suspected in well-informed quarters, his career has been a most peculiar and adventurous one. He was described by some as a Franco-Irish-American, by others to have been born in the East Indies, a Frenchman with Irish parents, a captain in the British East India Service, a colonel in the French Army. During the trial, the prosecutor passed around a photo of P.J. Tynan, the bookstore owner helping with the transfer of funds between England and Ireland. The photo was handed back, then marked into evidence as the number one exhibit. Prosecutor declared, that is number one in any case, 
and the assumption was now made that Tynan was the number one man of the Invincibles, rather than merely the number one exhibit in the case. Tynan ran with it, whether to boost his own status or to protect the identity of the real number one, even by causing confusion. Tynan was reported to have been a mere messenger for Frank Byrne, useful in that he could legitimately conduct business between the two countries via his bookshop. He was involved. Both Careys testified to this, and Kavanagh ID'd him in the photo. But his involvement is accused of being conflated in his 1894 book, The Irish National Invincibles and Their Times. If Carey was willing to confirm Tynan's involvement, what difference would it make to confirm that he was number one or not? Tynan was involved in some regard. The full extent unknown for sure. Two weeks after the assassinations in Phoenix Park, hotel owner Henry Jury died, while cause of death was noted as a respiratory issue and fever. Police were later reported to be investigating it as an Invincibles-related murder. Tynan was staying at the hotel when Mr. Jury inadvertently opened a letter allegedly containing directions as to the working of some secret organisation. Supposedly Tynan found out and took to using a slow poison on the unlucky proprietor. The few mentions of this in the papers following his death refer to this suspicion of Tynan and the poison as improbable. Whether or not Curran believed Tynan to be number one, he was certain he wanted him questioned and in March 1883 issued a warrant for his arrest. Tynan had fled with Frank Byrne to France. Byrne was on the way to the south of France for his health, reportedly coughing and spitting blood. Byrne and Tynan, unbeknownst to them, were being watched by Scotland Yard as they made their way down to Nice. In Cannes, they met a Polish count, or a Russian prince depending on the source, and they were happy to let the affluent man join them. As the situation progressed in Ireland, Byrne and Tynan thought it prudent to be near a port should they need to flee France. The Polish count decided to follow them, reuniting with them in La Havre. He informed them that he happened to have a yacht docked in port and offered to take them for a sail while they waited on their steamer. En route to the pier, the three ran into a journalist friend of Byrne's. Byrne introduced the journalist to the count. The journalist knew better and warned them that this count was in fact Detective Inspector Morris Moser of Scotland Yard, attempting to get his wannabe prisoners on board his ship so he could haul them over to England. Byrne and Tynan would ultimately evade all attempts of arrest. In America, Byrne would continue to condone the actions of the Invincibles. At a New York Martyrs meeting in July 1883, attended by Mr. and Mrs. Frank Byrne, PJ Sheridan, John Walsh, O'Donovan, Rossa and more, those present paid honour to the Phoenix Park assassins. Frank Byrne died in February 1894. The funeral at Providence, Rhode Island, had an attendance unlike any in recent years. Over 2,000 accompanied the body to the grave. O'Donovan, Rossa was among the mourners. Mary Byrne would die that November. Their headstone reads, Natives of Dublin, Ireland, co-labourers with Charles Stuart Parnell erected by their fellow countrymen. Briefly implicated in the conspiracy was P.J. Sheridan, the man who Carey alleged dressed up as a priest. In February, the Freeman's Journal interviewed P.J. Sheridan's wife. She admitted he had been involved in the Fenian movement back in 1865, but had never heard of James Carey until his name was mentioned in the papers. 
She reported that her husband had left Ireland in October 1881 and hadn't been back for fear of arrest. She had no knowledge of him returning to Ireland, especially not in the disguise of a priest, and said she had no doubt that Kerry was either lying or mistaken. In an interview with PJ Sheridan himself in March, he confirmed that he had never met Kerry in his life and that Kerry had fabricated the story to help save himself. He did, however, admit to visiting Ireland to sort out an issue regarding his property and for putting down agrarian riots in favour for boycotting. Aware of a general order to arrest him and everyone thought to be in the service of the Land League cause, he disguised himself as a priest. One wonders, if the two men never met, how Kerry was aware of Sheridan's inclination towards this mode of disguise. Papers were drawn up and sent to America, requesting the extradition of Sheridan following information from informers. Another suspected of being behind the group was Patrick Egan. Treasurer of the Land League, Egan had no lack of access to funds and was seen in company with Carey and Brady. With Carey, he could feign political excuses, encouraging him when he ran for town council. The addition of Brady seems too much of a coincidence. When Egan contested the Rotunda Ward of the city for a seat in the corporation, he was supported by invincible James Mullet. Mallon was suspicious of the friendship between the publican and the known teetotaler Egan, especially when the latter would write substantial checks for the former. Following the assassinations, Mallon posited the involvement of Egan in a report. It is quite possible that Egan and his party were the assassins. Egan was aware of the new departure early in the week. He has lots of money at his back, knows the low desperados in Dublin and is trusted by them, could provide a horse and car among his baker friends, was troubled about an audit of Land League funds, and would have several motives in getting the outrages committed. If he was concerned, there would be very little hope of detection as the plot was outside Ireland. The police, when raiding the Carey House, discovered letters to him written from Paris by Patrick Egan back in late 1881, around the time of the formation of the Invincibles. The letters include ambiguous sentences, which may take on different interpretations, knowing the inference that Egan was involved with the society. I trust you will be successful with the business at hand. It can mean anything really. It does also create suspicion and questions that the state would have preferred to see answered in court. Inspector Mallon's modus operandi was always to get an informer. And the curious thing about it is after the Phoenix Park murders, uh, Egan disappears to Paris. And the suspicion must be there that, that he had spoken to uh, Mallon and Mallon had let him get away. That seems to me to be a, a possibility. I have no evidence. I don't think there is any evidence. But it seems to me unlikely the Invincibles were acting on their own. Uh, he is the obvious candidate and the fact that he quote-unquote absconds uh, and never comes back to Ireland again. John Walsh, the man who was sent to set up the Dublin Assassins, was arrested at Havre. A Middlesbrough correspondent says concerning the arrest of John Walsh at Le Havre that his friends in Middlesbrough find no difficulty in procuring affidavits to show that he was in England on the day of the Phoenix Park murders. And on this sworn attestation, 
They base a kind of belief that he will shortly be at liberty again. The authorities wouldn't let an alibi for the murders stop them in charging Walsh. If he was instrumental in swearing in members of the Invincibles and transferring funds to them, that was crime enough. In the town of Rochdale, England, police searched the room of a public house where Walsh was staying and seized a number of documents. Among these documents were papers containing the names of members of secret societies and letters of accounts disclosing the organisation and ramifications of conspiracy in the northern districts of England, especially in regard to the three towns of Rochdale, Bolton and Manchester. The correspondence, which is understood to have been seized in the apartments of Walsh, comprised of letters alleged to have been received by him from a person lately taken into custody. But his extradition to England from France was refused, and by summer, Walsh too would find his way to safe harbour in the United States. No one would ever find out for sure who the elusive number one was. Perhaps it was Tynan. It's the easiest leap to make. He claims the title. Do we know enough to deprive him of it? Perhaps it was Egan. Perhaps the notion of a number one was a complete miscommunication with Tynan, Egan, Byrne and Walsh all equally responsible. There may be yet another suspect lost with time. Perhaps a truly secret member of a not-so-secret organisation. Perhaps there was no number one at all. While the suspected but unconfirmed high-level organisers of the Invincibles remained free and in the shadows, the Invincibles themselves remained in their cells, awaiting their fate. Penal servitude had been the sentence passed to many of those on trial, but five of them, Joseph Brady, Daniel Curley, Michael Fagan, Thomas Caffrey and Tim Kelly, had been denied this result, the judge donning a black cap and condemning them to be executed for their involvement. These five would be executed. More than five would die. In the next episode, Executions, Exile and Power. The Invincibles Park Assassins is written and produced by Roisin Jones. Narration by Jason Coburn and Mariana O'Rourke. Music for the series is composed by John Kelleher. Our guest historians are Michal O'Dwivlin, Felix Larkin, and Donald McCracken. Actors in this episode are Oshin DeLonga, MJ Sullivan, Paul Butler Lennox, Morgan C. Jones, Declan Rudden, Julian Kalen. Artwork for the series is by Tonya King and can be viewed on Facebook and Instagram forward slash The Invincibles Podcast and Twitter forward slash Park Assassins. Follow us for special extras and future updates. <laughs>